So almost two years ago. Almost two years ago, I stood in front of a group of women in this, in this room, and I told them that we were going to close the daycare here. Uh, so, I loved these women. Um, like, I invested in them for years. I loved these kids. The kids at the daycare here. I got video walking into the room and I've got like 25 or 30 little kids. Like I'd stand right at that door, they'd be outside playing. I'd come up to this glass and I'd wave at them and they'd all rush to the door and they couldn't get in so they're like animals on a glass window. <laughs> and I could hear, Pastor Mark! Because I'm the fun guy who shows up for 10 minutes, sings songs and leaves. And they would open the doors and they would rush and just jump on top. They just loved our time together. I love these kids. So we had to do a very hard thing and tell them that we were closing the daycare. So I think back on them fondly. I still love those women who work here. Uh, and I still love those kids and I miss them. But it was hard. Despite our relationship, my relationship with these women who worked here, um, their response was to attack me. Not just me, but the elders and our church. The next morning, I stood outside the front doors with Brian and told family after family how hard it was to close the daycare, but that we had to. And we faced, at that time, I don't know, an onslaught of uh, the nicest way I know how to put it is mean. It was mean. And I, I, don't, I don't blame those people for being upset about that. It was hard for them, too. And they took it out on me and us. It was followed by months of increased, what I would call, <sighs> wickedness. I, you know, I, I don't like calling out people, but there was a lot of evil. Not everyone involved was evil, but there was a lot of evil thrown at me and you and the church and others. It came over social media. I got text messages, phone calls. Uh, there were a lot of people who were very unhappy with that decision and they raised hell for us they ridiculed us they spit swore cursed me us they lied slandered committed libel they brought other people into their camp there were people from Kentucky cursing my name I've never met you you know, just bringing in as much 
as they could to support their feelings. They defamed my name, they defamed the name of our church, they assaulted my character, and I think worst of all is many of them assaulted the nature of our God. On my own and at my best, I would have given in not only to their demands, but also to my own sinful desire to be admired. That's me on my own. That's me at my best. But by the grace of God and the, and the goodness of Jesus Christ, we stood firm through the initial onslaught that was kind of thrown at us. We stood firm as elders. We stood firm as a church. Uh, but personally, for me, my armor was depleting. I was growing weary very fast. I spent just over a month uh, trying to continue to do ministry effectively. But the reality is that they wounded me pretty badly, too. And I think I can admit that now. It hurt. And I think the reality is I was so badly wounded that it took me three months on sabbatical to pick up my broken heart and my broken mind and my broken spirit so that I could serve you better. And God replanted my feet on the firm foundation of his truth that there are still more battles to be fought. And to come back into ministry ready for war, not against people, but against the enemy and against sin, on my own, I slipped, I was weak, I was injured, but over three months on sabbatical, God brought to me his armor. And he picked me up off the floor. And he gave me his righteousness, he gave me faith, he gave me his gospel, he gave me his word, and he gave me prayer. He picked me up and he told me, Mark, this is just phase one of my plan for this church. Phase two is going to be some pruning. That will hurt too. So take this armor of mine, put it on, and go to war against your sin. You'll need it for phase two. And I'm just like, that's a lot, God. It's a lot to take. That's a heavy battle. But he says to me, phase three. Phase three is fruit. So don't lose hope, but in order to survive, in order to survive the good produce, you have to remain ready, keep 
Watch and continue to stand firm or your fruit will wither. That's what I hear him just keep telling me. Stand firm, Mark. You have learned the importance of what it means when I tell you to stand firm. Now, go and tell my people what it means to stand firm. Tell them what it is, what it means, how to do it. I tell you that for two reasons. Number one, I want you to be able to stand firm through the worst times in your life. Number two, With Jesus, there's always hope. Always hope. Doesn't matter how bad things are. Doesn't matter how much it hurts. Doesn't matter how hard the trial. There's always hope. So, we're told this in 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Paul says to us, Stand firm in the faith. So, there's this command here for us to stand firm. And that command comes with a qualifier. And that qualifier is that our firmness has a specific location. And that location is in the faith. So the command is not that we're just, just to be firm about everything in life. But that we are to be firm on a foundation. That we're to stand on a firm foundation which is our faith or the truth. So, what is the truth? Right? God is truth. God's word is truth. The gospel is truth. Jesus is truth. The Holy Spirit is truth. Our history is truth. Our future promise of eternal life with Jesus is truth. Those are the truths that we stand on. That's the foundation that we stand on. That is the footing that we have. God, his word, the gospel. As the Corinthians faltered and slipped, they were a mess. The Corinthians were a mess. They, they slipped on, on the culture because the culture was trying to suck them into their arguments over truth. And the Corinthians lost their footing. And they were far from standing firm. Their convictions to truth were weak. And the product was a vast amount of sin that ruined the image of God and the gospel of Christ through their behavior. And instead of influencing the culture with the truth, they let the culture influence them with philosophy and empty deceit and lies and deception. We will always live in a world that is pushing us around, that is ridiculing us because they don't know the truth. They don't see the convictions of godly people doing what God's word commands. They will fight us, attack us, ridicule us, assault us, and hate us, and even try to kill us. If not physically, at least emotionally, and mentally, and spiritually. And as Jesus says, it's not then. They know not what they do. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it is, they are blinded by the enemy. It's the enemy who's attacking us. So, we have to be ready and prepared for war, not against people, but against the enemy, against our sin. That's the battle, against our sin. And our general 
declares to us as we enter the battlefield, stand firm, Christian soldier, warrior. Stand firm. Do not give into the ways of the world. Do not let temptation pull you in. Do not let sin creep at your door and surprise you. Plant your feet on the ground and be immovable. Be immovable. You stand on a rock. A rock that will not and cannot be moved. And his name is Jesus. He is a rock that is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is our rock. He is our firmness. He is our conviction. He is the answer to everything you face. He is the only firm footing upon which you can stand no matter what you're going against in your life. He is your answer. He is your salvation. He is God. Do not be moved by every wind of doctrine that comes whispering to your ear. And don't be pulled in by the desires of your flesh. Instead, what he tells us is, stand firm on my victory. The victory that I won on the cross. The death that I took for you, that I defeated in the grave when I conquered death and sin by rising from the grave. Stand firm in that victory. And if you do, this is what he says to us, 2 Chronicles 20, verse 17, you will not need to fight this battle. That is an awesome promise. What do we do then, God? Stand firm. Hold the position and see the salvation of the Lord your God on your behalf. He's won it. We don't fight it. We stand firm in the battle that he's already fought. So the question is how do we stand firm, right? doesn't do you very good if I just stand up here and yell at you to stand firm for an hour, right? You gotta, you gotta have some tools, right? You gotta know how to stand firm. This is beautiful. God has an answer. The answer is in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 13 through 18, which we'll spend the rest of our time in. Ephesians 6, 13 says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, and here's that command again, to stand firm. So, we stand firm by taking up the whole armor of God. Okay, does that make sense? How do we stand firm? We take up the whole armor of God. Okay, verse 14, he says, stand therefore. And the reason he says it that way is because what he is really telling us is, I've just told you that, that you need to take up the whole armor of God and stand firm. And then verse 14, stand therefore, means I'm now going to tell you how to stand. So stand therefore means listen to the next seven things I'm going to tell you because these seven things are the armor of God and they are the means by which you stand firm. They are the means by which you enter the battlefield against sin. And these seven things are the foundation, or I'm sorry, these seven things are the equipment that you wear to battle as you stand on the firm foundation of Jesus Christ. You will not win your daily struggle against sin 
if you are not wearing or provided with the armor of God. You have to have it. These have to be godly disciplines. So, seven ways to stand firm. Number one, put on truth. Verse 14, having fastened on the belt of truth. So Paul's going to use this war analogy, this battle analogy, and he'll reference the way that soldiers dress and the things they do. And, and the first thing that he mentions in verse 14 is the belt of truth. And, and not just having the belt, but fastening it. Because this was a soldier's way of preparing for battle. They would tighten their belt around all of their armor. So they'd put all their stuff on. They'd have this tunic and this, all this equipment. And they'd have their, their uh, sword on the belt. And they'd cinch up the belt and get it tight. And what it would do is kind of condense everything and allow them to move freely in battle so they don't got stuff just kind of floating around like they're wearing a big dress. Instead, it's all tightened up. It holds their sword. It's the first thing to get ready for battle. If you, to give you kind of a, an image of this, think of a football player on the field ready to start the play. He buckles his chin strap. He puts in his mouth guard. He gets in a three-point stance and he waits for that ball to get snapped. That's the readiness. That's, that's, that's what putting that that belt on is and the belt is a belt of truth so we ready ourselves by believing the truth so the question again is what is truth and the answer is all the truths all the truths not truths outside of God but the truths that God reveals to us in his word every truth the truth about who God is a truth about Jesus the truth about the gospel like I said before the truth about our history the truth about our future all the truths in the Bible, everything that is true, everything that is an absolute truth. That's, we, we, need, we need to believe them in order to stand firm. And that was the problem in Corinth. Believing all of God's truths prepares us for battle. It's the first step for us to standing firm. If you don't believe the truth, if you don't trust the truth of God's word, if you don't believe God, if you don't know truth, how will you know the lie? So we have to know truth in order to stand firm. And if we don't believe truth, then we will slip on every cultural banana peel thrown our way. Number two, put on righteousness. Verse 14, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now the breastplate was the soldier's primary protection against the you know, the, there was a, a sword that they use really often in battle. It's called the short sword. It was primarily for hand-to-hand -hand combat. It was the most popular weapon used in war at the time. And the breastplate was the only way to protect the core, the vital organs, right? And that short sword was a vicious weapon, and you had to have a breastplate if you had any chance of survival in those hand-to-hand -hand combat. It protected those vital organs. It was necessary survival. But we don't put on our righteousness as a breastplate. Because we don't have any righteousness. We're not good. There's nothing good in us. Have you read Romans 3? Have you read the entire Bible? It's pretty clear. No one does good. No, not one. None of you want anything to do with God if it were not for the goodness of his grace. If it were not for the gift of Jesus Christ, we have nothing to offer God. We have no righteousness to wear. 
And so when we put on the breastplate, we see this in Isaiah too. Isaiah says that God, he says, this is actually Paul's literally pulling a reference from Isaiah. I can't remember the exact reference in Isaiah. I think Isaiah like 26, 17, something like that. And he says, God says he puts on the breastplate of righteousness for battle. That's his breastplate of righteousness that he has given to you through Jesus Christ. That's what happens when we believe the gospel, when we believe Christ, when we believe that Jesus lived a perfect life, wrote, uh, died on the cross for your sins, rose from the grave, and is alive now. The Holy Spirit gives you the righteousness of Christ, the perfection that he lived that we don't live. He gives to you as he takes your sin. Some, I think Martin Luther was the one to call that the great exchange. Like, here, I'll take all of your sin, and you can have all of my perfection. And we're sitting there going, I don't think you understand how bartering works, Jesus. You're getting the raw end of the D on this one. You realize that. And he's like, no, I'm not. You know what I get? Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And now he's seated at the right hand of him who is on high in pleasure and enjoys the presence of Jesus. That's what he's doing. He's in the presence of God, which Psalm 1611 says, there is endless pleasure and forever joy. That's what he looked forward to. He's going, I'm not getting the raw end of the deal when I take your sins and give you my perfection that you didn't earn and you don't deserve, but I love you and I'm so good and so gracious. I'm going to give it to you anyways. Now take it. And then Paul says, and put it on. It's yours. You own it. Use it. So we put on his righteousness. And when the Spirit puts Jesus' righteousness into us, when we get saved, then he enacts that righteousness to the point where that righteousness begins to produce fruit. And we're told in Galatians 5, 21, or 22 through 23 what that fruit is. And this, this is what it looks like. This is what a person looks like when they put on this breastplate of righteousness. Love, joy, peace, Wait for it. <laughs> patience. <laughs> I said to someone this morning, I said, you know, the funny thing about patience is if you want it, you have to wait for it. <laughs> <laughs> Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That is the fruit of daily putting on Jesus' righteousness, which, which helps us stand firm against our flesh that wants to pull us back into sin. Number three, put on the gospel. Verse 15 says, And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. The shoes that Paul is referring to were not just regular shoes. They, they were actually specific shoes that soldiers used to help them stand their ground. They were for the battlefield. In fact, Josephus, who is a, uh, a historian from the first century and uh, not a Christian man, but recorded a lot of Jewish history. He's a Jewish historian. So we get a lot of information from him, not from a Christian perspective, but we get a lot of truth validated in Scripture by him. Well, one of the things that he says once is that there is this soldier who was wearing these specific kind of shoes, and he was chasing someone, and that guy who was chasing ran onto, uh, which would have, like, a stone ground, 
So he was in the dirt running fine, and then he got that stone ground, and he couldn't run right because these shoes had nails sticking out of the bottom of them. And they were for the battlefield, but you couldn't run on, on like, stone with these shoes because think of them like cleats, but the cleats are like three inches long. Right? So you're walking on these little stilts, right? And then they had a strap that went around your ankle and your shin to provide support. That's the kind of footing that the gospel gives us. It's, it's traction for battle. The gospel is our constant, our anchor, our firm footing in any spiritual battle. So how do we use the gospel in battle? We remember, this is how we do it, we remember that it's called the gospel of peace. That's what Paul said, put on the readiness given by what? The gospel of peace. So there are two ways in which the gospel is peace. One, because of the gospel, we are at peace with God. Romans 5.1, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first one. We have peace with God. We were enemies of God. We did not love God. We did not want God. We may not have said we hated God, but deep down our sinfulness didn't want nothing to do with him. And God says friendship with the world is hatred with God. There's no sitting on the fence. There's no, well, I don't hate God, but I also don't love him. I'm not a Christian, but I don't hate God. There's only one that you're on one side of the fence or the other. There's no in between. We hated God. You might say I didn't feel like hate, but you rejected him. And without Jesus, you have rejected God. But through Jesus, he tears down the wall. He tears down the fence. There's no fence anymore. And he pulls us into his camp and says, you are now part of the family. You are loved and cherished. And now you have a relationship with God. You are his child. He listens to you. He cares about you. He serves you. He blesses you. He tends to your needs. He shepherds you. He hears you. You have Ephesians chapter 3. We now have, through Christ, confidence to enter his presence with boldness and access to ask whatever we want. What? What? Imagine you wake up one morning and there's a genie next to you. (laughs) Or maybe just the genie thing and you rub it the genie pops out and you're like i can have whatever i want are you kidding me you're like this powerful being just gives me whatever i want that's god and i know you're thinking yeah but god just doesn't give us whatever we want yes he does want me to prove it i'm gonna prove it all right psalm 37 it's great i just read this this morning listen to this Delight your, this is Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord. Okay? Just pause for a second. Think about that. Delight yourself in the Lord. Meaning, make him your greatest treasure and satisfaction. Like the parable that Jesus tells. Where there's a man walking in the field and he finds a great treasure. And when he finds that great treasure, he buries it back under the ground. He runs home, grabs everything he owns, sells it all, and goes back to that land and says, I want that land. And he sells everything he has to buy that land. Why was it worth it? He gave up everything. Why? To have that treasure. That is delight. That's what it means to delight yourself in the Lord. To 
give up everything. I'm not telling you to sell all your stuff and whatever. I, what I'm saying is that you would give up everything and anything to have just him. Delight yourself in the Lord. And he's worth it. He is the most valuable treasure. Delight yourself in the Lord. And what will happen if I do that? Listen to this. And he will give you the desires of your heart. That's a promise. I need clarification. Does that mean if I just love Jesus a lot and kind of do a bunch of godly stuff and look, you know, do, just kind of act godly and you know, I'll just get what I want then? No, no. There's, let me clarify. Verse 5, Psalm 37, 5. There's two things that are going to happen. Two things you have to do. I've used this verse a thousand times with you guys. You should know it by now. You should memorize this verse. And say it to yourself every day. There are two things you have to do. And the third thing is the promise if you do them. It's a conditional promise. It's a little clarifying statement to what we just read in verse 4. Number one, commit your ways to the Lord. That means obey God. Okay, Commit your ways to the Lord. Obey Him. That's number one. Commit your ways to the Lord. Number two, trust in Him. That's, what you, that's your role. Obey and trust. You guys remember that song? Trust and obey, because there's no other way. I don't know the rest of it, but that's all I know. That's all I remember. <laughs> to be happy in Jesus. There it is. But to trust and obey. Okay, I had to finish it. So, number one, obey him. Number two, trust him. So listen to what this verse says. Commit your ways to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. How's he going to act? What's he going to do? He just told us in verse 4. He will give you the desires of your heart. What he's telling us is if you obey him and he's the joy of your life and you trust him, you're going to desire the things that he desires. You will want his will. You will have a passion for his truth. You're only going to see and care about and love and have a passion for the very things that God loves and sees and has a passion for. And so when you start asking him for stuff, you're going to be asking for the stuff he wants. And he's going to be like, yes! Yes, every day, all day, I'll give you every desire of your heart if you would just obey and trust, and I will transform your desires. And when I do, you will want them, and you'll ask me for them, and I am going to do something that will blow your mind, which is in Ephesians chapter 4, 3. I will give to you far more abundantly than anything you could ask or think according to the power that I am working within you. So when I hear people say things like, yeah, God will give you anything you want, I'm like, amen! If you trust and obey and he's your greatest desire, I want to get whatever. I want a genie in a bottle. I know it sounds selfish. But if I trust him and obey him and commit my ways to the Lord and, I, and he's my greatest pleasure, I know that those wants are going to be the right wants. And I know I'm going to get them. So we're at peace with God. Okay? 
There's another kind of peace. Because of the gospel, we have the peace of God. So now we're relationally at peace with God, but now also we have an, an item, something to hold. Peace, the peace of God. Jesus says in John 14, 27, peace I leave with you. Listen to this statement. My peace I give to you. Jesus makes us at peace with God, but then in order to help us endure the daily trials of spiritual battle, he gives us his peace. Like, like he knew peace in ways that no one else ever had. Or no one else really ever could. And then he goes, and, and that peace that I have, that peace that, that I understand my relationship with God perfectly, and the absolute, total, and complete security that I have in who I am, so that when people come up to me and say, are you really the son of God? I don't have to go, yeah, no, I really am. I swear, oh, I swear, I, told, I can prove it. I can prove it. I'm not insecure. I'm Jesus. I know exactly who I am. I don't have to defend myself to anybody. And when Pilate says, are you who you say you are? I just have to go, you know it. That's his answer. Yeah, you know it. And when the Pharisees say, you think you're God, he's like, you said it. That's to say, he's not like, oh, he's not all insecure. He's like so sure of himself because he knows who he is because he's at peace with God. He's got a peace that we want badly. How many of you wish you were more secure? Right? I do. I'm super insecure. I really am. I mean, I think we all are to some extent, right? My son told me the other day, he's like, oh, dude, all my friends, not, he's like, these kids just, all the boys just walked on the hallway and all they do is punch me and hit me and kick me. I'm like, dude, they love you. <laughs> They're 12-year-old boys, that's what they do. It's like a hug. That's what that is. Because 12-year-old boys are always insecure, right? I mean, it's just like the, like the worst feeling when you're that age, you just don't know who you are yet, figuring it out, getting along, don't know how to show another dude that you love him, so you just punch him in the face. I mean, that's just what guys do. Right? And you call him a wimp for falling down. <laughs> so that's what, the, that's what Jesus gives us is his peace to, to be sure of who we are in him. Standing firm in peace is not about us doing anything other than just resting in that relationship of peace with God. Standing firm in the gospel means resting peacefully in God's victory, knowing who we are through the gospel and in Christ. Number four, take up faith. Verse 16, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Now this shield here, it refers to a large and heavy shield. It's literally about the size of a door. Imagine taking that thing into battle. Here's the thing. It's not the weight of a door. It's the weight of two doors. Okay, because it was two giant slabs of wood stuck together. And then uh, it would be covered in linen. And then there was another layer on the outside of like animal hide that was thick and burly. And then they'd strap it all together with these steel straps. And when the enemy would launch fiery arrows, because they'd have those arrows with, you know, those uh, just those little, I don't know what you call those things, those little pads on the end, and they'd 
dip them in fire, and they'd light them fire, and they'd launch them. And so you had these flying arrows going into troops, and these troops would be standing there with this giant double door, right, holding up this thing. It's got that hide on front, and this, the arrows would stick into the wood, and then the hide and the linen would 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 sputter out the, uh, would singe out the, the flame, and it would just smoke. So there's these images drawn of soldiers in battle with these giant door-like shields with just smoking arrows stuck to the outside of them. That is our faith. The enemy launches flaming arrows of temptation to you because within each of us, there are little kindles of lust. Different kinds of lust, different kinds of desires. Just little embers waiting to be ignited by just a tiny little flame. And that's all it takes is a little flame to ignite and, and to light up that sinful desire or passion that's just sitting there ready to go wild. We, you know what I'm talking about. You feel it. You've had it. You face it. You've either been there or you're there. Our faith is in God's and in his word. And his word reminds us that when temptation comes, we have to resist. Okay? That's faith. Believing the word. Resist. When temptation says, have this woman. She is a pleasure to you. God's word says, you shall not cover your neighbor's wife. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not be sexually immoral. When temptation says, drink this until you're happy, God's word says, don't get drunk. Don't be led by a spirit that isn't my spirit. When we start to rationalize our temptations, we say to ourselves, why would God ever send this temptation my way unless he wanted me to have it, right? Convince myself that it's okay. And then God's word says to us, he tempts no one. We stand firm by faith. By believing when the enemy launches those arrows of temptation, our, our, our shield is believing God's word. That as that temptation is thrown, it's never going to stop. The arrows are always going to come. And we have to believe God's word because in God's word is the answer for every temptation. And that's how we stand firm in faith. Number five, take up salvation. Verse 17, the helmet, take the helmet of salvation. A soldier's helmet covered every part of his head, down, all the way down the back of his neck to protect him from behind. And it was a heavy metal. It only exposed the eyes and the nose and the mouth. And it was so strong that it could resist any attack and was completely impenetrable except to heavy and close blows by a giant heavy axe. Right? Other than that, Arrows, for example, would plink right off of these helmets like hail off of a car. Like small hail off of a car. <laughs> Some hail goes right through windshields. <laughs> no soldier would go into battle without one of these helmets because it provided them with exceptional confidence. Nothing's going to get to this head. Nothing's going to get to the center of my faith and my belief and my understanding that is our salvation, total and complete confidence that we're saved. That's what Paul's saying. When you put on the helmet, what he's saying is put on confidence that in the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jude 124, you are kept forever. You're safe. 
secure, guaranteed, sealed. Those are all words in the Bible. I didn't make them up. That's how God talks about your salvation. I mean, think about it. You put a helmet on a six-year-old, and what are they going to do? They all of a sudden become like a battering ram, right? They're running headfirst into everything with their head, right? Head down, running. Ah, oh, they're not looking. They don't care. They're six-year-olds with a helmet. Why? Would they do it without a helmet? No. Why? Because the helmet gives them confidence. Hey, I'm, I'm invincible. I'm unstoppable. I got this thing protecting my head. I can run through a wall. And then some of them do. Right? That's, that's, what, that's the imagery that Paul's giving us. That's what your salvation is. That's what, it, that's what he's saying. Be absolutely sure of your salvation. Because the enemy wants you to believe you can lose it. Because if you think you can lose it, then what does that tell you? I better be good to stay saved. That's legalism. It's not the gospel. It's heresy. It's false. It's a lie. Don't go believe in that. I got to be good to be good with God. I just told you in the last one. I don't remember what number it was. Which one was it? Number three, peace. You're at peace with God. Through Christ, not through you, not through your behavior, not because you're good. And what the enemy wants you to do is believe you can lose your salvation so that you try to be good to keep it. And it's going to lead you down a roll, a road of endless aggravation and frustration and unhappiness and pain as you struggle to try to be good. You're not, so you won't be without Jesus' righteousness. So we stand firm by standing in the gospel that has saved us and cannot be moved from beneath us. Number six, take up the word. Verse 17, take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. All that equipment so far that we've been given is defensive, but now we're given, finally given a weapon for taking the offensive. Right? When Jesus was tempted by Satan, he didn't cower in fear. And he also didn't declare, I'm God, get away from me, Satan. He didn't do that. What he did instead is he set an example for us. He responded to Satan's temptations with the word of God. God's word will always counter sin. God's word will always have an answer for any temptation. And God's word is an offensive weapon. Look at Hebrews 4.12. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's word is able to dissect any sin. It is able to pierce the heart of every temptation. It doesn't just protect you. It kills your sin. You see that? It kills your sin. All we've been talking about so far is just being defensively ready. A temptation's coming. The enemy's coming. Sin is coming. Get ready. Put on the belt. Put on righteousness. Pick up the shield. Put on the helmet. Get ready. Get the shoes of the gospel ready. you got to be ready because it's coming for you. And God says, but don't go into battle without a weapon. Fight back. Take the sword from its sheath and kill sin. Now, that... Sin's already been killed. We've already won that battle. But we're still waging daily battles against that temptation to go back to the very thing that has already been conquered. And we have to kill sin. And we kill sin with the word of God. Last week I told you you've got to wage war against your sin 
We have to fight those temptations. We cannot go into battle without our weapon. We stand firm in the word. That's how we stand firm, through the word. By believing it, by reading it, by studying it, by meditating on it, by memorizing it, by learning it, by talking about it, by declaring it, by loving it, by hearing it. If this is not consuming your life, no wonder you're in sin. You haven't fought it yet. You haven't done anything yet. You're always on the defensive. I mean, what happens to people who are always on the defensive? They're backing up, constantly backing up, backing up, backing up, and then they're stuck in a corner. And there's no room to pull the sword and to plunge into the enemy because you're against the wall. And you just get stuck. And the only thing you can do is cry out for help. And hope that God gives you, and he will, other people to help you. But God doesn't send us into battle without a weapon. He gives us his word to use as a weapon against our sin, against our flesh, to fight it. What sin are you dealing with? What's going on in your heart? What's going on in your mind? What thing is it that's constantly rising? You know that's not good. You can't help it because you keep falling for it. What temptation keeps tapping you on the shoulder, trying to pull you back? What is it? Because this book has a response to that temptation. This book has an answer to that sin. This book has a place of rest and relaxation and counsel for your soul. It has a response to sin. It tells you how to answer sin. Jesus did it. Jesus said to temptation, no, 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 no. Satan said, worship me and I'll give you everything. And and Jesus said, no. The word of God says, worship the Lord your God only. And what did temptation do? What does the enemy do? What does Satan do? Goes away. There's an answer in the word. Everything you face. Number seven, pray. Verse 18, praying, now there's two caveats here, praying at all times in the spirit. So not only are we commanded to constantly be praying like 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, which says pray without ceasing. Obviously that doesn't mean like, you know, walk around with your eyes closed all the time. Right? That wouldn't be very efficient for life itself. You can't drive with your eyes closed. What he means is have the heart of prayer that is always going to God. Always. My wife, when I'm here at work, my wife calls me like 34 times a day. So much so that she laughs about it. She'll call me. We'll talk. Hey, what's going on? Hey, uh, are we doing this or that tonight? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, bye. Three minutes later. Ring. Yeah. Uh, hey, are we doing this or that? Yeah, yeah, okay, okay, bye. Five minutes later. Yeah. <laughs> She's like, okay, I'm sorry. The last thing. Uh, right? And then like 15 minutes later, you know she was waiting for an extra 10 minutes just to call me again. Uh, when I get those phone calls, you know what that tells me? I'm on her mind. She thinks about me. She loves me. She said to me the other day, I'm kind of obsessed with you. I'm like, that's cool. You're my wife. That's okay. I'm, I feel the same way about you. So... I mean, I'm not obsessed with me. I'm obsessed with you. So, 
Well, maybe there's a little bit of <laughs> self-obsession there. Okay, anyways. Um, my point is that I know my wife can't stop thinking about me and loves me because she can't stop talking to me. She wants to be around me. She wants to hear from me. She wants to talk to me. That, that's what Paul means when he says pray without ceasing. You ought to have that relationship with God. Psalm 37.4, if your desire is for the Lord, how would you not be endlessly praying? And I don't always mean just getting down on your knees and making a big scene about it, putting candles around you and blah, blah, all this weird. It's just, just talking to God. I walked down the hallways talking to God. My prayers are interrupted constantly by people. And I just stop praying and move on with life, and then I come back to it later. I have a relationship with God. He's like walking here with me, standing right here. I talk to him. It doesn't have to be some big ordeal. I do recommend taking time to make, make your prayer a big deal sometimes. You know, the prayer closet, being alone, spending a little time with God, quietly, uninterrupted. That's good too, man. We need that. But I mean just in constant communication with God. So we, so we need to be praying constantly. The other caveat here is that praying in the Spirit is what he says. Praying in the Spirit is different than just praying. This is a huge thing that Christians just, I don't think a lot of Christians don't get this, don't know this, and don't do it. There's a difference between just talking to God and praying in the Spirit. We won't know God's will, and we won't know what God wants us to pray about if we aren't praying in the Spirit. We will only pray for what we want. Even if our intentions are to want what God wants, we will still only be praying for what we want if we don't pray in the Spirit. So when we pray in the Spirit, the Spirit tells us what to pray for. Not audibly talking to us, but He leads and guides and directs our hearts, which is very easy if your greatest desire is God and He's what you think about and care about and contemplate and you talk to Him all the time, then you're in the Spirit because you love Him and the Spirit of God is love. And he pours his spirit into you by pouring his love into you. And when he does that, communicating with him becomes very easy because you start praying for his will. Romans 8, 26 through 27 says, The spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought but the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit? Because the Spirit intercedes for you, the saints, according to the will of God. As we seek the Spirit's help, God communicates His will through His Word, and we learn how to pray God's will, which will always be answered with an absolute and unshakable yes. So we stand firm by being in endless communication and contact with God and depending on his spirit to guide and direct our prayers. You should say that before every prayer. When I stand here and pray for you Sunday mornings, I take a moment alone before I start talking out loud and I say, Holy Spirit, I trust you. Because Psalm 37.5, I trust you. Work. Use me. Pray through me. Guide me. Okay, now act. Go. <laughs> He's cool with that, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> so, those are the seven armors of God. Our world will forever be shifting sand. 
We will forever be living in cultural movements, mantras in our culture of falsehood, and all kinds of different expressions of the same old sinful inclinations, right? Sin is sin. There's nothing new under the sun. There's, there might be, temptations might wear a different outfit, but it's the same sin leading to the same destruction. So as everything around us shifts and moves and changes to suit the world's desire for sin. And you're tempted to go with the culture, to be influenced by the world around you, to be drawn in and sucked in by your flesh and go for those sins. We, God's people, must stand firm in truth. Stand firm in righteousness. Stand firm in the gospel. Stand firm in faith. Stand firm in salvation. Stand firm in the word. And stand firm in prayer. This is not just a spiritual dance. This is not just some fun thing. This isn't just like, oh, Pastor Mark had a decent sermon today. It was like, cool, you know, it was great, uh, spiritual, blah, blah, blah. I don't know, whatever. This isn't a game. This is your life. This is your spiritual well-being. This is the difference between heaven or hell. Why do I say this is the difference between heaven or hell? Hebrews 3.14. For we share in Christ. Yay! We share in Christ. Right? Awesome. If. This is conditional. If. Indeed, we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Then you share in Christ. So yeah, your life is on the line. This isn't a dance. This is real life. If you're a young person here, if you're like anywhere between that, from, from a little kid to 25 years old, we'll say. Young, rather immature, even if you're mature for your age, I mean, come on. Right? These are habits and practices you have to do now. Now! If you're 18 years old, now! Do not wait until you've been beaten to nearly to death like Paul was. They thought Paul was dead. I don't want to look at you and think, that person is spiritually dead. Wake up now, young people. You guys, now. You boys, now. This is the time at this age to put on the armor of God, to fight your sin, to stand on the truth, to declare to the world that you belong to Jesus Christ. We have a kingdom to build, and I want you to do it with me. And we don't have to fight these battles because it's already won. Your spiritual life is at stake. Your joy is at stake. Years of anxiety and depression are at stake. Your pain and suffering are all on the line. This is war against sin, not just a game. You have to go to battle against your sin if you want to be happy. And when you go to battle, you need to put on and take up the full armor of God so that we can obey our commander-in-chief when he says, Stand firm. Hold your ground. Today, you don't have to fight this battle if you stand firm on my victory. Let's pray.